Welcome to the Mind Your Autistic Brain talk show, the talk show for late identified autistics, where each week you will hear the autism journey of another late identified person, including the hardest part, the best part, and insights they share just for you. So you know you are not alone on this journey, my friend. Find your person and community here each week. And don't miss these special editions of Creator Spotlight and Hot Topic with your hostess with the mostest, Social Audi. That's me, Carol Jean. Let's get started. Welcome to Mind Your Autistic Brain. Last week, I surprised you with my guest, Sophie Manovich, who is a researcher and non-autistic individual. Okay, I'm doing it again. Just telling you guys, I am totally surprising you all over the place. So today, I am very, very excited to introduce Dr. Ali Arena. She's a therapist based out of Los Angeles, California. She does online work, guys. So if you don't live in LA, you can still schedule appointments with her. She is fantastic. She specializes, and I even hate to use that word, but she really does take time to listen and really come from the perspective of what is it that my autistic clients need? How can I serve them? She specifically looks at not just autistic adults, but autistic couples. Guys, welcome Dr. Ali Arena from Dr. Ali Arena Communications. Thank you, Carol Jean. Um, I'm so happy to be here. I know. I listen. We found each other on our Instagram. I, I loved. I love the gram. It is the best place to meet some of the most amazing people, and I connected with you. Last night, you had this incredible interview that you did with Rachel, who is also autistic, and she is a therapist and clinician. And oh my gosh, just like the insights and the things that you guys were sharing on that, that was fantastic. And I'm going to make sure I drop that in the show notes, guys, because you want to go check this out. Yeah, that was amazing. And that's also why I love Instagram. I met her on Instagram, and she... So she's Rachel Dorsey, the autistic SLP. And um, I found her because I was reading also a magazine for um, speech therapists. And she had a whole article in there. Really cool. All about autism acceptance and neurodiversity at work. So it's, yeah, she is pretty amazing. And her blogs, if you want to check her out, are really good too. But also when you and I talked, I got such gems of wisdom in that conversation. So I love speaking with autistic individuals because it just informs me so much better to make sure, you know, I'm never doing anything that could be harmful, unintentionally, of course, but just making sure I'm listening and I'm aware. So Allie, share with us how you became interested in and began specializing in neurodistinct adults and couples. I mean, you yourself are not. So where, how did you get here? Right. What brought you to this world? I know. So my background is in speech therapy, and I was always drawn to working with autistic children. And from that, I really found like I was drawn to the social part, probably because I can be awkward. And so I really empathize with that social struggle. And also, you know, I think we we take for granted that in the autistic community, we explicitly teach social skills, right? We like break it down. We don't do that for neurotypical people. And there's plenty of neurotypical people who aren't seeing hidden rules either and who are doing things that are just 
sort of odd at times. So I found that really interesting how there's this whole dialogue about breaking stuff down that I only saw when speaking and working with autistic individuals. So I got really interested in that. And then from there, I started working with teenagers and adults who would ask me about dating. Um, and I realized pretty quickly that no one was really talking to them about this or their sources were maybe porn or like, um, you know, like a Disney romantic movie, which although is lovely, isn't normally reality when you're really in a relationship, right? So it was just, there wasn't a lot of talk about it. So I went back and I got my doctorate and I looked at dating on the spectrum and the whole time I also journaled about well what do I think is difficult and of course I thought communication because I you know biased to think communication which yes some autistic individuals definitely put that but it was a lot broader and made me realize that like there are a lot of similarities in what everyone struggles with when finding a relationship like boundaries um, confusion about what the progression is of a relationship, how, um, you know, like, are we hooking up? Are we dating? When do I meet their parents? Right, all that. Um, and then the anxiety and rejection. So all of those things were kind of the bigger components. So after I finished, I started working more and more with individuals. And then I later found something called the Neurodiverse Couples Counseling Institute. Um, and was certified through them and now have started working with couples. So I guess I don't really know why I'm, I'm just drawn to it. I love it. I enjoy it. Um, and I think I have ADHD and I think it's like no autistic person is the same. Every session is different. So it's not, nothing ever feels repetitive to me. And then I think additionally, you know, there's been this huge neurodiversity movement, especially through pandemic. And that's been really interesting and also um, not difficult is not the word, but um, it, it's been impactful because every time something comes out or I have a conversation with an autistic individual, I'm like, oh, that's something I didn't think about at all. Now I need to maybe add that into what I'm doing therapeutically. So that's also been fun. And then at times a like, you know, an ego check of like, okay, I need to constantly be looking at everything holistically. And I think that's a really fun way to think about working with anyone. Well, I mean, Allie, yeah. you're neurodistinct. <laughs> I mean, you're in, you're in the pool with yes. the rest of us, girl. I mean, mm -hmm. that that is some insight right there right. that right. really adds to not the understanding, but the knowing. And that's right. a totally different thing. You know, you can read and study all day long and understand the concept of swimming. But until you get wet and you try it, you don't know. So having right. that perspective really helps. And I love that that you, you know, sort of said you check your ego. I mean, gosh, just yeah. as humans, we all have to do that. Mm -hmm. We all get so entrenched in our rightness about, you know, how we see things or how we understand something to be that right. we can miss the greater opportunity or the deeper insight. So I, I love, see, this is why I love talking to you. This is why I'm so <laughs> glad you're here. When you yes. said yes, I was like doing the happy dance. <laughs> Seriously. So as we're moving and we're in May, which is mental health month. And the whole reason I wanted to feature you, because I'm like, 
look, one of the biggest struggles, the biggest challenges that so many of us in the neurodistinct world face is finding a decent therapist. Oh my gosh. Okay. So like my friend Mara and Rita have not so typical talk podcast. Rita has got this rocking awesome therapist. Every time she talks about her, I'm just like, God, you're so lucky. You're so lucky. It's just, and so many of us are just like, it, there is the horror show, right? Everybody has these horror tales about how they've gone to this therapist, what the therapist has said. I mean, I've got people in my community and it's just, it's heartbreaking. And it's just like, wow, how can you ever even imagine trying to treat another human being? And you just said something incredibly hateful, hurtful, or just dismissive of another human and you're supposed to be helping, right? So that's like when I found you and and all these other types of things that you do. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, we so have to talk to Allie. <laughs> we got to well, appreciate them. that. No, I, I've heard that from people I've worked with too, just um, like a lot of dismissal of things that don't feel like a, a big deal maybe to the therapist, but for that individual really is something big. And I, you know, I used to teach a lot like size of the problem, like, is this a little problem or a big problem? And I do, I'll reference it sometimes, but I actually realized when I did it to myself, I'm not that good if I'm stressed about identifying the size of the problem. Like, you know, if something's happening in my relationship, it can feel like a fire is, you know, ensuing in my household, but it's, it's not, it's like, we didn't communicate about picking our dog up from daycare or something, but it, to me, it feels really large. So I think, again, just taking that reality check and being like, huh, I teach this and I know the tool, but I can't always apply it immediately. Well, I mean, that's just a totally human thing. Right, right. I mean, that's just a totally human thing. And, you know, for those of us with alexithymia, just being able to, and sort of like what you and Rachel talked about last night, because this was sort of like a big aha thing that I had in mm-hmm. my journey once I discovered I was autistic was to go, oh, what I was identifying based on what sort of the external world was telling me I was experiencing wasn't this emotion. It was actually this, you know, and being able to like find the subtleties because sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, fear and excitement feel the same in your body. So being able to try and put those two things together and then also separate them based on the circumstance isn't always an easy thing to do if you don't even know it's happening, right? Right, right. Well, and so, if you aren't feeling in your body yet or or you have just one feeling in one place that's so large that you're not even aware of maybe the other sensations, Um yeah, I do do a lot of emotion wheel work and not like this is this feeling, right? Like not identified, but more like there's actually a breath of feelings that you could be having and and they're not all negative. I find that a lot that the individuals I work with attribute a lot more of what they're feeling to a negative thing where it might actually be like, I think you're that uncomfortable right before you're happy. Like you're you're about to have something happy happen, but they'll kind of shut it down as as a negative feeling because for so long, I'm sure they did attribute that to feeling something negative. Well, that, and sometimes, you know, like for myself, it would be, I would feel emotions. I feel emotions so deeply, so intensely Mm -hmm. that it can be scary. That sensory overwhelm of those physical 
responses. And it's like, it can be very scary because you're like, whoa, why am I feeling like it's almost this out of control feeling because it comes on really strong, even if it's a good, excited feeling. And so you're like, well, I got to suppress that because I, I'm not geared to handle that because I don't know what that is. Or, you know, it feels like a threat because, you know, our brain is always seeking to protect us first, <laughs> first and foremost. Yeah. So the brain's like, whoop, nope, shut that down. And that becomes part of your, your automated response as an undiagnosed, unidentified autistic person. So when you discover that you're autistic and you start to realize and recognize all of these things about yourself when it comes to sensory, and then you start to really connect with and sort of allow yourself to identify what's going on in your body, then you start to sort of see it when it comes and you're like, who, and you, you catch yourself in that automated response of wanting to just to shut it down. And you're like, no, I'm going to see where this goes. I'm safe. And that's, you know, you have to remind yourself on, in mm -hmm. that prefrontal cortex and in, in your logical brain, I'm safe. It's okay. Let's just sort of explore this. And just having that awareness to know that you can explore that sort of overwhelming emotion and feeling in your body to see where it takes you is such a huge discovery for so many of us who maybe have gone for 40 or 50 years or more just trying to suppress it because somewhere we've heard a story that we're supposed to have this sort of even level keel and this is what our emotions mm -hmm. are and we're not supposed to be up or down in any extreme yet that's how we experience it. Well, and I think you brought up a really interesting point, too, that I feel like I do educate a decent amount on in um, neurodiverse couples sometimes is, you know, there's still that sort of, you know, dumb idea out there that people who are autistic don't have empathy. But what you kind of just talked about, too, is it's, it's actually the opposite. Like, I'm so empathetic and I'm feeling so much of your emotion that it might look like I'm shutting down because I'm not sure, you know, what to do with it. But it's not that I'm unaware of it. It's not that I'm not feeling it for you. And I, I that shows up a decent amount in relationships. And I don't think um, the autistic individual always has the vocabulary to say like, oh, no, that's actually what's happening. I do. I understand what's happening for you. I just can't. In that moment, I'm not able to express it. And then the partner seeing it as you're dismissing my feelings, right? Like you're not you're not taking in how I'm feeling at all. Um, so right. That's a big mismatch, I see. It really is. I see that as well. And, and the other part of that too is just the processing speed differences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's like sometimes, you know, someone will want me to respond or react like right in that moment. And not knowing before, it caused so much tension and friction and misunderstanding and a lot of hurt feelings on both sides. You know, like I recently had a conversation with my sister and She's younger than me and, you know, she is not neurodistinct, but I think she might be, you know, those kind of things. We come from the same parents, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. she calls me, she tells me something and it was like a huge shift in our plans, a huge shift in what was happening. And so my brain immediately kicked into problem solving mode and I'm running through all the, the different things in my head while she's talking you know, and I'm, I'm listening to her and she's wanting me to like tell her everything's okay and I'm fine and I'm not upset. And I'm like, 
I even said, I need, I need some time to process this because I just made all these plans and just made all these reservations that I've already paid for. And this is a huge out of nowhere information. I was like, so give me a minute, let, let me process this and I'll get back to you. And, you know, my sister needing me to be okay with it, just like, okay, but are you sure? And, you know, kept going yeah. into it. And then I was like, listen, I need to go. Let me go process this and just give me a few <laughs> yeah. minutes and I'll get right back to you. Right. Yeah. And, and, and in that conversation, it just didn't, the penny didn't drop on her end, even though, you know, my gosh, we know each other for 45 years. <laughs> It still happens in these really long-term relationships because you've had these patterns of behavior for so long in that relationship that, you know, as the other person is becoming aware and changing and, and addressing and being able to verbalize for the first time, hey, I need right. a minute, you still haven't quite learned how to respond on your end either because it's a two-way street, right? So I, she then she starts texting me, not just, not just text, but then she like Facebook messages me and I'm just like, girl, I love you, but back off for two seconds. Let me breathe. I'm autistic. Okay. It give me a minute. Just give me a minute. <laughs> well, and I think you're also showing, yeah, like a partner also has to get to a place where they're trusting of when you say I need a minute, it's not necessarily negative. It, it's honestly like a neutral, like I need a minute. Maybe I'm going to come back annoyed. I'm not sure, but I literally haven't even processed it. Um, but I could totally see for someone else, especially if they in no way want to hurt you and they, you know, love you, that being like, well, she needs a minute. She's obviously really mad. And now I need to, and, and also learning for people. So for me, um, yeah, if I'm frustrated, if someone was texting me more, I'm like more frustrated with you. I'm like, no, I don't want to talk to you now at well, all. It's just so like, learning I even that. say, I'm not frustrated. I'm not upset. I oh, just you need to process the information. I even said this, right? <laughs> but, it, so, but it just truly yeah. goes to just the human response that we all have to respond from our own needs. Yeah. And I recognized, you know, when I did get off the phone with her and I got that first message, I'm like, she really needs to know. And I really need to assure her that I'm not upset, that I'm okay, because she wants everything to be right. You know, her heart was in the right place and she wanted, you right. know, she wanted the trip to be good and all this kind of stuff. So I just shot her a quick message back and I'm like, I promise I'm okay. I'm not upset. I'm just problem solving. And it takes me a minute. So don't fret. Don't, don't freak out. Don't, don't, don't have them, you know, complete spin out on me. It's okay. And you got to trust me when I tell you it's okay. <laughs> that is some really good communication. I don't think. Look, this is so new, Allie. Like, yeah. there, there is no patent on the back. This is 40 plus years of learning. <laughs> right, right. And really in the last, really in the last seven, just since learning I was autistic, I, because I didn't know what my communication challenges and differences were. Right. To even address them. Just knowing what they were. Ooh, that has been a life changer. I've heard that from everyone. Yes, like helping to, you know, show the two sides of a situation. But um, like one of the people I work with, she kept getting reviews at work that she didn't listen and that um, she wasn't collaborative, right? And we were talking one day and she started to look up and turn away and I was like, what are you doing right now? And she was like, I'm thinking about what you're saying. And I was like, do you do that often? 
And she was like, yeah, I do that a lot. And I was like, uh-huh. Okay. So other people are probably, and I, I actually know you're not ignoring me because she, she's wonderful and pays attention and is so great in sessions. But other people are probably perceiving that as like, you're looking away, you're ignoring what I'm saying. And I was like, what if you started to say to people, I'm sorry, I'm looking away. I'm just processing that little sentence made such a shift in her work community. Like they were very receptive to that sentence. They just thought she was ignoring them the whole time. Right. Like, Cause there are these stories that we tell yes. ourselves yes. about someone else. Yeah. And it's so easy to do that without, and, and that's one of the things not knowing because Yes, we're all painfully aware that our physical communication, our nonverbal communication mm-hmm. is just as loud as our spoken communication. And just being able to, because we don't have those, you know, mirror neurons, we, we're not looking at ourselves, we're, you know, right. we're looking out at the world. So just being able to reflect and identify, you know, what is my physical communication language? Mm-hmm. You know, what is that? And not having to change it because there's nothing wrong with it, but just being mm-hmm. able to communicate it and convey it to the people that you care about and the people who are being, you know, in relationship with you so that they understand what your physical communication style is and you can understand theirs because they have one too. <laughs> well, and I think um, that's what, when speaking with Rachel Dorsey and I brought this up last night, cause I just think, she said it so beautifully, like there is autistic communication styles, there's neurotypical communication styles, there's everything, right? Like my fiance is an engineer, that's definitely a different communication style, but, and none of them are bad, none of them are better. They're literally just, that's what they are. And if you realize there's a mismatch, that's where you come together to figure out the mismatch. Um, and I feel like that's neuro, that really is what neurodiversity is supposed to be, right? Just respecting that everyone, brain and people communicate differently. Um, But yeah, I feel like just being able to point that out, obviously, in a very gentle way, I think that's important as a therapist too, not to make it like, what are you doing right now? Because that's weird, right? Like not (laughs) pointing it out like that. I'm going to leave crying. (laughs) Yeah, like inquisitively be like, what's happening for you right now? Because and then, you know, again, this is why rapport is so important. Because to me, I could see how someone could interpret this. Because um, I've also heard that from individuals that I've worked with that, you know, they've been told that they're doing something um, and it comes across mean. And that that's been not just upsetting, obviously, no one wants to be mean. But then they'll go back and think of every other instance where they've possibly act, acted that way. So it's like a compounding, almost like sensory anxiety overload. So that was something that I think that's so important for other therapists to know too, that like, we might just be saying a statement sort of neutrally, right? Like, oh, it might be perceived this way. But to be aware that if there's any history of a person being told that at some point, it might bring back all the other instances of that. And I had not, I hadn't thought about that really. So that was a huge one to sort of make part of um, my practice. Ooh, Allie, Allie, I love yeah. we're talking today because <laughs> this the topic in my autistic brain community this week is our stories. Oh, okay. Okay. And it 
it goes so deep because it's that earlier stories that we learn from like age five to age eight Mm -hmm. in that window, everything around us, all the people around us tell us how to interpret the world and ourselves. So we have this story and when you're late identified, you know, you've got to, and it was one of the biggest things in my journey that I developed for myself as part of the unveiling method was what are the stories that I'm telling myself today that I've been carrying with me since childhood that no longer serve me or that just aren't true. Right. Okay. And, you know, when you go into a response, because, you know, you have this emotional, you have this emotive response when somebody says, gosh, you know, somebody said, gosh, you're stupid. I'd be like, okay, whatever. And it wouldn't phase me. But if I agreed to that story and I believed it because somewhere along the line, somebody told me I was stupid and I, I agreed and believed it. So then I incorporated that. So I've been telling myself and living my life from that perspective and with that story that I'm stupid. So when you tell me that it's going to hurt my feelings and I'm going to feel less than, and and then all the times that anybody ever said it, all the emotions come flooding back in. Like you say, it's this compounding response. So instead of just going, yeah, whatever, I might have a completely different response if I believe that. And one of the things that I I really love and started to incorporate, and it's one of the things that we've been talking about this week, is when you have a miscommunication and somebody says something that upsets you or hurts your feelings or you know, just doesn't sit with you in a way that you feel like you you've lost something's not connecting. You know, you're not getting what the other person's saying, or maybe you're taking it in a way they didn't intend and being able to respond versus react is to reframe that. I love Brene Brown teaches this. She says, okay, the story I'm telling myself right now is Mm -hmm. that you're saying I'm stupid because, you know, I I did something really, you know, absent-minded or whatever. and, And that you don't trust me that you don't believe I can do things. That's that's the story I'm telling myself. You might've called me stupid, but this is all the other stuff, the story that's coming with it. Is that what you meant? You know, am I totally off the mark? And just, and that's not an easy thing to do because if you have gone unidentified as autistic your whole life, we have done nothing but try and not have any conflict. We've tried so hard not to, we are people pleasing to the nth degree trying to get it right. And so getting that vulnerable, getting that, that brave to ask that question is a huge shift, but it's one of those shifts that when it happened in my life and when I've watched other autistics start to embrace that and and use it in their life, that's the game changer. It's, it's so huge. And, and the step before that to even realize that separation of Oh, wait, all this stuff is coming up. But that person actually just said to me, I don't know, hey, you forgot to shut the cabinet door. But for me, what came up is like, you think I'm dumb. You think I'm not going to get anything done. You think, what? right, the dialogue of, but some of us, like it's so enmeshed that we can't even pull the thought apart. So being able to pull that apart is such a skill in itself. And normally, if you're vulnerable enough, the person's like, no, I just literally meant you didn't shut it. Could you shut it next time? Like it's not 
<laughs> right. Or could you shut the cabinet? Yeah. Because the last time you left it open, I hit my head on it. It really right. hurt. I mean, something right. totally like that. Yeah. Like just an honest, just like, no, I, I, I didn't mean to cause any harm to you. I'm just saying, can you please shut it? Right. And I love this because the more conversations that we have about this and the more that we share just sort of how we've experienced the right. same thing in our lives, let somebody else know they're not alone and that it's mm -hmm. okay. And that there is, there is another way to try something and that there is a different way to approach communication than, than maybe the stories that we've learned early on. I, and you know what has been coming up for me is I feel like direct communication sometimes gets a negative connotation, right? Especially in women, we could be called other things for being direct, maybe. Right. But, Good one. But what right. But what we're really talking about is being direct, kind, but direct, right? Like, okay, wait, this is coming up for me right now. Is this what you mean? Or is this what you mean? And I think that's where when you're in, you know, kind, loving relationships and friendships, that's so much easier to do. That might feel really hard in a board meeting. I don't even know if I could do that, to be honest. But in a, <laughs> you know, in a relationship, I think that's so important because I, I think there are plenty of friends that I have that um, I probably could have a little bit more honest conversations, but there, there's a little bit of that fear of directness. Yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, it also kind of falls into one of the questions you have to ask yourself when you're in a relationship or you're seeking that true connection relationship. Is the other person capable of, do they have the capacity and the skills to reciprocate this type of communication? Um, and sometimes when you venture out into that, you don't know if they do. Mm -hmm. And when you approach from being direct or being vulnerable and sharing some of those things, sometimes you have to also take into account and remember that the other person, if you're changing up how you've always communicated and it's different, they're going to put on the brakes and it might be just or feel a little scary for them. And so in the moment, they may not know how to respond to that. So sometimes, you know, the first response you get isn't necessarily what their skill set or capacity is to be in reciprocation for that, but also just sort of give them time to process and, and come back to you to say, you know, I really appreciate or acknowledge that, that you were being really vulnerable and open with me. And I didn't really know how to respond to that right away because it was new or I, I was feeling different in myself. And I didn't know from my perspective how to meet that because it was scary for me. And just letting somebody know, hey, we're gonna, I'm trying something different. This is something I've never done before, but I you're an important person to me in my life. And I want us to have a deeper, more vulnerable and honest connection. So I'm gonna share this with you in the hopes that you'll be able to reciprocate in kind in this type of relationship conversation. But if you can't right now, it's okay. I want you to know you I I understand and I'm gonna give you that space to kind of process it. I just, you, that's, you can't demand, you know, no. response. <laughs> well, and I, I talk about this a lot. Like you need to give people grace. People need a second to process what you're saying, to understand maybe that, yeah, you're, you're basically setting a new boundary, right? And 
on the other side of that boundary, there's a person typically, and that person might have a reaction. It might not be great, or it might be a reaction kind of like you're saying, that's neutral. I don't know how to respond. And you don't know what your new boundary could be, um, you know, triggering in them. Like for all you know, you setting that is hitting a childhood wound that you didn't even know your friend had. So it just takes a second. You got to give everyone grace. I say that a lot with all the um, movements that are happening in our country right now, which are amazing, <laughs> pro movement in every way. But giving people a second to process and understand and ask honest questions and hold that space um, for a little and then expect people to move forward, but just to hold the space for a little bit. Yeah, because, you know, I think that's one of the things that that's been a big blessing to me is not just opening up that grace and that space and extending it to other people, but extending it to myself in the process, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's so often that we are so willing to give to everyone else, yet we withhold from ourselves. And And (laughs) it's just, it's such, there's such peace and freedom in, in giving that to yourself and acknowledging that you're worthy of that. Right. And, and, you know, you brought up the people pleasing that is so chronic in most neurodiverse individuals, I think, right? Because I just, at a young age, you probably learned like, oh, I did that wrong. (laughs) I should correct that and try to avoid ever having that happen again. Um, And I just think it's, and, and being a woman, I think when you add that in, it's two layers of extra people pleasing. And it's not until you're later in life, or maybe you start going to a therapist that someone even says that word to you. Because for me personally, I was like, I'm not a people pleaser. I'm really nice. Like that was my default, right? I'm really <laughs> That's nice. really That's good. Not, yeah, I'm not a, I don't do that. <laughs> but in reality, you know, I'm so nice that I don't take care of myself, which isn't a good call. Qual- it's not, it's not the best quality. Taking care of yourself is really important. So yeah, that's, I think that's a journey for a lot of people. Well, Allie, one of the things that I really admire about you is that you go out into the autistic community and you ask questions. You are, I love it because you are constantly seeking this deeper knowledge. You don't want to just understand it. You want to know, you know, as best you can, you're you're jumping in the water and you're swimming, girl. And I love that. (laughs) So what are some things that you found as a therapist that you've been incorporating into your practice to help your autistic clients? So again, learning more, um, like one person I was talking to really explained this well, she had to clean out her closet and her mom was like, just get rid of your jeans. Like your jeans don't even fit. Like why, why is this a thing? And she finally explained it in a way that I was like, whoa, for her, each pair of jeans had a distinct memory And she was saying that happens with a lot of objects, like objects hold memories. And I was like, okay, that's very different for me. Like, I think I remember the first time I bought designer jeans because like I had money to buy them. But since then, I don't remember anything really about my jeans or my clothes or, you know, it's kind of like I wear them. But I was like, okay, so that's really different. And I was like, your mom's probably not seeing that at all because I don't think she thinks that way about objects. So it's a different conversation, um, but then also still helping her get rid of, uh, you know, because we don't want it to become hoarder level, right? So, so there's there's a dynamic there, but that different lens was really helpful. Um, 
And then also the, the introception. So the identifying where feelings are in your body, really getting specific about that. That's not something I was incorporating initially because again, I went right to communication. But where does communication start? Typically non-verbally, right? And with ourselves. So if we're not aware of how our body's presenting or what's even happening in our body. Um, and I see that, you know, a lot of the men I work with, um, a complaint of their spouse may be that they go from zero to 16. And with it, for me, I can see them go from zero to 20 in this session and zero to 30 and zero to 40, but they're not, I can tell they're not feeling it. So that's been a lot of work. Um, and I think I just had a thought and it totally left my brain about one more thing that I've been incorporating. Oh, this was something I was talking with um, Daniel Jones from Aspie World. And he was saying, you know, a lot of therapists have told him to meditate, which I do feel like is kind of a default. And again, you know, I have to take my own advice when I say I don't really like meditating. But what works for me is to go on a walk and either listen to classical music or a podcast that's kind of like like a trashy podcast. There's no thought, right? It's just sort of I'm walking. Um, and actually, when I was talking to him, he was like, that's been how I do therapy. Like, I'll walk and talk to my therapist. So I've started to incorporate, if you want to walk and talk with me, it's fine. You can turn your camera off if we're not doing any um you know, like nonverbal communication, if they want to kind of get some body work, we will keep the camera on. But just sort of, again, expanding that those boundaries and being like, well, why do you have to sit and talk with me if you're actually more effective walking? Yeah, I love that. You know, that's, a, that's one of the really big things that, that we do in the mind or autistic brain, you know, talk about meditation, but we also talk about the seven forms of rest. And one of those is the active form of physical rest. And, mm -hmm. you know, that is also sometimes, especially those of us who are ADHD and we've got these right. really high energy engines, I've got to expel that in some way in order mm -hmm. to focus. So, yeah, I, I, my meditation is my run, you know, go for a walk, those types of things. And I think that has to really, you, as a therapist, but also just as an individual, be able to have that freedom to go, my meditation looks different than this textbook yeah. picture. Right. You know, I'm not going to sit there and go, um, you know, that just totally, right. I would go nuts. I have tried. My it does not work. It makes me a wreck. Yeah. Right. It makes like, it I worse. Don't <laughs> I don't want a face mask. Like, you know, that's kind of self-care a lot of times. Yeah. Like, that actually yeah. feels really sticky to me. I don't like that. Right. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. And it's totally good. And just finding... And experimenting, like being the scientist in your own life and knowing that Ooh, yours that. doesn't have to be like everybody else's. You know, I say I show up as the scientist in my lab coat every day. And at the end of the day, my question to myself is, what have I learned more about myself today than I knew yesterday? Ooh, that's so good. What a good journal prompt. That is my journal, journal prompt. <laughs> of my, I really like that. Think yeah. about it when you are in science mode, when you're in scientist mode and you're in your lab coat, you're not judging. You're just no. letting the data come to you. Mm -hmm. You're just observing. You're experimenting. You're trying new things to see what the outcome is. Right. You know, yes, we have these predictive behaviors and we can, you know, these predictive ideas and we can think of what might happen, but we don't really know till we try. So right. kind of giving yourself that that freedom, that grace, and that space to just be a scientist in your own life, 
I've tried more things. I've learned more things and I've let go of more broken things because I just tried it. I love that. Yeah. It's a, it's such an objective. I am a, I'm a to-do list hoarder and an idea hoarder. And really, I think if I just put on that scientific lens, I could easily be like, Ellie, you haven't done that in three months. Like you're not doing it. Or, or just say you're not doing it till 2022, right? Like physically move it out of your space. Okay, so I have a bit of an office supply obsession. Are you a post-it oh, note girl? Same. Oh my gosh, everywhere. <laughs> I mean, look, right here, just words. It's so I bad. Mean, I have yeah. my index cards, my color-coded yep. stuff. Okay, cool. We're we in good company. Yes, yes. I, <laughs> so uh, I, all the journals, all the planners. Oh my gosh, I collect journals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then planners, I buy all the time. And don't actually Don't use them. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. You're not alone. And I just decided is it's totally cool that I do that because, you know, I can cut them up and reuse them as something fun later in an art project. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things. So Allie, as we're wrapping up from a therapist perspective, what is the biggest piece of insight or knowledge that you've gained that you would like to share with another therapist and also with an autistic adult? You know, I really think it's listen for therapists, listen and um, sort of see if you can apply what someone's saying to yourself or to your relationship. Yes, obviously there are therapeutic tools to use in couples therapy, but are people saying things that you are like, oh, I do that too. Maybe there is something here that it's just a communication mismatch. It's not the, it's not the autism. Like this is simply just a communication mismatch. Um, and I think for autistics, I just think it's wonderful that everyone's really talking about what works and doesn't work because autism, still, there's a lot we still don't know, right? There's a lot we do know, but there's also a lot that we're not even sure what's totally happening in the brain. We're not sure how much is connected to the gut, right? There's just so much unknown. And I think the more, um adults are open about like what worked and didn't work and there's kind conversations about it about saying you know I did this as a child and this didn't help me or this actually hurt me as a child right I think those conversations need to keep happening just in a way that's respectful of both parties when the conversation's happening I love that. And it's why yeah. I'm so glad and so thankful you are here today. So if you guys are on Instagram, go check out Connecting with Dr. Allie. You can connect you. with Allie Arena. She's also online and offers sessions that way. So be sure if you've been looking for a therapist, if you really need somebody, I highly recommend Allie. She's Thank listening. You. She is learning. And she's neurodistinct too. Just in a different way. And that's okay. Cause we know that we all come in different colors, different shapes, different communication right. styles, different cultures, different languages. And we are all seeking one thing, connection. It's so we're true. all seeking connection and we're doing it from a place of kindness, gentleness, patience, and understanding in the mind your autistic brain, not just with each other, but with ourselves guys, I'll see you next week. Maybe I'll have another surprise. Thanks Allie. If you are someone who likes to help people and share what has made a difference in your life, 
please share this talk show with a friend and on your social media accounts so that you can be the blessing in another late identified autistic's life. Be sure to tag me at Social Audi so I can personally say thank you. And to help keep the talk show ad-free, please consider becoming a one-time or recurring supporter through either Buy Me a Coffee or the Anchor Podcast links in the show notes below. I truly appreciate your support. Thank you for being a listener and thank you for adding your voice to our story.